0: I wanted to explain this didn't happen because of Trump. This happened over the last several decades, and we need to understand that in order to understand where we are today.
1: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate Magazine's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court and the law and the rule of law. And I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover the courts, And this week, we're actually bringing you an off-week special edition show to celebrate two new things. The first is the release of director Don Porter's new four-part series, Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, which will air on Showtime starting next weekend. And we're also here to push out the boat for my book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America, which will come out this Tuesday in paperback. Yeah. OK, so we are all bracing right now for yet another term at the new six to three conservative supermajority Roberts Court. And at the same time, there's still just so many stories to be told about power and democracy and organizing and the arc Of the moral universe, and how everyone still gets to pick it up and bend it, and how they would do that. And on this week's show, we just want to tell some of those stories. I'm also at this moment finding just a lot of hope and nourishment in the ways in which so many women are exerting so much professional power to bring along so many other women and vulnerable communities. And so Whether it's the Barbie movie or it's Fonnie Willis or Taylor Swift or in my case, women lawyers, I just really wanted to spend this weekend thinking about how women make political change. Now, I have been a huge Don Porter fan for a very long time. Her award-winning 2016 film, Trapped, explored the laws regulating abortion clinics in the South, and in so many ways it predicted and sketched out this reproductive rights moment that we all live in now. But I asked her to join me on the show this week because her new series Deadlocked is in so many ways this big ambitious swing at the Supreme Court we all really need right now. Don Porter is an award-winning documentary filmmaker whose recent films include The Lady Bird Diaries, which premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival this year, The Emmy-nominated The Me You Can't See that focuses on mental health, Emmy-nominated John Lewis, Good Trouble for CNN Films, and Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer that was about the Tulsa Massacre. Dawn was a professor and head of the documentary program at the UC Berkeley School of Journalism, and she's also a lawyer. She graduated from Georgetown Law in 1993, spent a couple of years as a corporate litigator, and then became director of standards and practices at ABC News. Dawn has been a great ally and friend in the last few years, and I cannot tell you what a thrill it is to welcome you to Amicus This Week to celebrate your project's first birthday and my project's second.
0: Thank you so much. It's a thrill to be here.
1: As with so many of your films, this one opens in this moment in the late 1950s, the 60s, and it's a love story to the civil rights era, the power of ordinary people to make change. And you kind of sketch out early on this moment of palpable public awakening, the sense that Suddenly, in the wake of Brown v. Board, people realized it just doesn't have to be this way forever. And sit-ins and protests and public attention can make huge change, and not just in the legislative branches, but at the court. So you open with the seating of justices like Earl Warren and Thurgood Marshall by presidents who are responding to those huge public social moments. And I feel like, of course, we're living in a moment of backlash to that moment, with ascendant Trump justices. And I want to ask you if the message of the series or one of the big messages of the series is that at the moments in which people really, really care about the court, the court changes.
0: Um, wow, what a big, uh, that's like a fastball right down the middle, right? So- um,
1: <laughs> We are not here to play no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You know, my grandmother used to say And she said this frequently before the Supreme Court decision, as if there was only one. And for her, in a lot of ways, there was only one. There was Brown v. Board. And so I was really thinking about that a lot when we started the series, because there's a lot of Supreme Court bashing these days. And that is worrisome and tragic, because people like my grandmother look to the court as this evidence of the power of government and politics and the judiciary to do good. And so I wanted to start where I hope we can return, which is to a court that can do good, that can sometimes lead and sometimes reflect what the populace is demanding. That's not the court that we have today, but that is a court that I I hope that we can have again in the future. So... so
1: I was really arrested, and I know this is deliberate, by the subtitle, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, because this isn't just a story about a court that kind of took control of America, taking more and more and more on that. Goes to the heart of how Americans live, but it's also an America that has somehow managed to build a court in its own image. And that includes, you know, celebrity justice culture to really brutalizing political polarization to what feels now like just meanness and infighting in the midst of the court. And in many ways, I feel like that subtitle suggests that somehow the United States managed to build precisely the court that it deserves in this awful moment. Please tell me that's wrong.
0: (laughs) If it's not the court that it deserves, it's the court that many intentionally have been seeking. You know, there's this mythology that the justices are each selected as if from Olympus on high and they are the sun gods. They are the absolute perfect people to deliberate and decide really like the substantive rights that govern our existence. And that's not the case. The justices are people. They are nominated by people with particular goals. They are confirmed by others with particular goals. And so, you know, when you think about how the the justices are appointed, what's expected of their terms, and what the people appointing them are are hoping that they will deliver, you see how this process of nomination, confirmation, and seating of Supreme Court justices is as political as, as, you know, any undertaking in our constitutional democracy. So, that being said, there's a flip side to that, which is, the justices are not living in a bubble. They are actually influenced by the public's perception of their legitimacy. And although that may be, not be as strong as we like, um, it's there. And so, if anything, I hope that the subtitle also reflects a glimmer of hope that reasoned, rational, and responsible reaction to not just the decisions, and I want to be really clear about that. This is not just, I don't like your decisions, and so I'm going to criticize you. It is, I don't like the method in which the court is behaving, um, or I'm concerned about all of the things that we go through in the series, the lack of adherence to precedent, the way that cases are coming to the court, the flagrant disregard for basic ethical considerations. All of those things taken together, I think really point to a court in crisis. And that does not have to be the case. We do actually have a say in that.
1: So I was thinking this morning, Don, as I was preparing about how few guests we have on the show that attempt to do the thing you are doing, which is grappling with the court as a cultural conversation. I don't think there's been a TV series about SCOTUS in decades. I'm not sure there's been a lot of films that aren't kind of you know celebrating one justice or another, but we just I think it's it's your Olympus point. We don't actually know how to have a conversation outside of quote the news Um, About the court, partly, I think, because the work of the court is just glacially slow. It's all in print. It's hard to imagine doing like a musical montage about like the drafting of opinions. But but you made
0: this although that is a dream.
1: The, the dream to mon- to draft that is a fever
0: dream <laughs> a musical montage <laughs> I, I, I,
1: when you produce that please send it our way i mean i just think it's you know you always struggle with how do you tell the story about this abstraction and this institution that isn't really uh, apt to be captured well in film or in television and i guess It seems to me that what you were trying to do in the series is force the American public to have a conversation that they only want to have around the news. And you note in episode four, I think, that the way the court survives as an institution is by keeping its secrets and by kind of lowering the shades and telling everybody not to talk. And you noted, I think, in an interview with The New York Times that the chief justice completely declined to cooperate with you, even though I think you'd hoped he would. So in a sense, this is really a series that wants to shine a big, bright light into an institution that is just really well served by the dark and by the fact that people only really care for two weeks in June every year. So I want you to just reflect, if you would, what that was about. I mean, the decision to take the Supreme Court from the CNN beat to the big cultural conversation beat and how you decided to do that in film with a public that is just really entrenched in this one very narrow way it thinks about the court.
0: You know, I think there are a few reasons why it's a daunting prospect to try and cover that the court in any way that feels like, you know, Just more than just reporting on individual cases, which is really important. It's really important that we dissect and understand the individual cases and what they mean going forward, what they mean about the direction of the court. All of that is really, really important. We're not allowed to record in the court, so we can't, we have no footage. (laughs) The justices, they selectively, you know, people say the justices don't give interviews. That's not true. The justices give interviews. To the people that they want to give interviews to. And if you're, you know, in a particular university, if you're a Supreme Court reporter, if you're reading certain newspapers, you'll have access to those insights. If you're of a class or uh, you know, in a circumstance where you were invited to conversations with individual justices, you will get some insight into their thinking. But that's not the majority of people. And so I think we we do a disservice to the public by not taking on that challenge. So, you know, as the New York Times reported, we did write to all of the justices. You know, my background is in TV news. And so I always send written requests so that when people say, you didn't even try and talk to me, I'm like, nope, here it is on September first, you know, we we and we tried multiple times, and there there was a while, and I think you and I may have even spoken about this early, where uh, before some of the ethical reporting started to come fast and furious, I thought maybe Justice Roberts might speak to us because he is an institutionalist, and I think that you know he certainly has seen more than the flashing you know yellow signs about danger here, um, about the public's perception of the court and the perception of his legacy. This is the Roberts court that is how we will study it that is how we will discuss it and i don't think he's happy about how that discussion is currently you know um taking place so there's a few reasons why i think it's daunting to even try and a- attempt to do this and then i will be honest like this isn't what i intended to do i am a uh, kind of a nerd and so the way this started is Vinny Malhotra, who used to be a producer at World News Tonight for ABC News. uh, We were working at ABC at the same time. He was the head of documentary at Showtime Networks. He literally just called me up about three years ago and he said, do you want to do something on the Supreme Court? And I said, yes. And that was it. We had no (laughs) plan. And so the two of us kind of noodled around. So my very first proposal, which I was wedded to for quite a while, was I wanted to talk about the confirmation process, because I just thought that it was really, really fascinating, or Warren had no confirmation, uh, you know, hearings. Thurgood Marshalls were how many, you know, bubbles are on the bar of soap. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is confirmed 99 to zero. And yet we have, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, who is confirmed by by one vote. So I was really kind of fascinated with that process and what that says about our politics that to your earlier question the way that the confirmation process even has evolved it demonstrates the split that we have in our society but you know then as we started to get into it i realized i wasn't there wasn't any big kind of like i like to be grounded in a world i like to understand the basics before you get into the nuance you can't appreciate the nuance if you don't understand the building blocks And so I thought a greater service, if Showtime was giving us for documentary, a lot of real estate, four hours is a lot of real estate. And so I thought we could do something bigger. And then the question became, oh my goodness, it's the history of the court. And, (laughs) you know, that isn't, you know, that's not riveting TV, although actually it could be, but is that really where we want to be? So I thought, why don't we try bookending with, I went back to my grandmother the court that she revered gave us brown v board gave us miranda you know gave us the right to an attorney gideon gave us all of these decisions that are so fundamental and that's historically what most americans have come to expect from the court that the court will step in and protect the least powerful among us over the last decade or so that understanding has come to a rude awakening um, and that is why people today are so shocked not just by the decisions, but by the arrogance and hubris of this court. And that's, I wanted to explain, this didn't happen because of Trump. This happened over the last several decades, and we need to understand that in order to understand where we are today.
1: So, maybe this just dovetails exactly with my next question, which is, the very first thing that that captured me in your telling, you know, in, in episode one, is that at bottom in the end, this is a story again, an American story about race and gender and vulnerability. And so much of it, Dawn, is framed through the lens of the experiences of black people, often black women, And you just have stills and grainy photos of, you know, people of color standing in line, people of color trying to vote, people of color trying to go to school. And that is all a constitutional story, too, right? That is uh, the legal history of America. And it feels like you really set out to write almost a counter-narrative about the people who are written out of the Constitution, written out of most of the history of the Supreme Court, written out of the founding – And this is a story of their attempt to kind of be in the story, be in the story, be in the story. I feel like you made a really deliberate choice to keep centering the faces and voices, particularly of black women, of Constance Baker Motley, of Eleanor Holmes Norton, of Anita Hill, these folks who, you know, built democracy in some sense and never get credit for it. It's exactly the reason I started Lady Justice with Polly Murray who built democracy and got no credit. And I wonder if you can kind of give us some thoughts on the ways in which, you know, historians have been telling us for quite some time about the ways in which the civil rights movement, the fundamental changes of the 50s and 60s and 70s was powered by black women whose names we do not know.
0: I think it's actually one of literally the most important and inspirational stories About our Constitution is how brilliant people took a document that was not written to protect them and realized it could be an instrument for their advancement. And that just fills me with intellectual awe that these lawyers, Constance, you know, all the people that you just mentioned, and of course, Thurgood Marshall and all of those lawyers that served with him, they said, wait a minute, this is our tool. We have the tool that we need. We just need to make the arguments to enforce it. And of course, there are political allies along the way. But to me, like I went to Georgetown Law School, I lived on Capitol Hill. I used to walk by the court every day on my way to law school. And you can't help but being kind of awestruck by the grandeur of that building, but also by what it represents. And so um, it was really intentional to say, this is um, the greatest legal story that we could possibly imagine, that these people have shown what a living document it can be. The rights that the Black people secured, not only for themselves, they secured them for all of us. And they paved the way for the America that we wave the flag about. (laughs) This is the story of America. And so I think it's Sadly, right now it's a great irony, but this is really the story of creativity, intellect, opportunity, and uh, determination. And I think that those are some of the best qualities of the you know hypothetical American um, or hypothetical person, you know, actual person. Um, so yeah, that was really intentional, but that's also what we found. You know, when going back and looking at the stories, at some point, like I really could have done a multi-part series just about race and the court and the constitution. It's a really, really fascinating story about how constitutional law kind of shaped and developed and protected and set out the framework for, for rights for black people. But, you know, wanted to do something, you know, a little bit different, but maybe, maybe that's next. I mean, because it really is race permeates our legal history it is there when you are not looking for it. And so it almost wasn't that I was looking for it. It's just that it was there.
1: Time for a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors. Let's return now to my conversation with lawyer, journalist, and award-winning documentarian Don Porter on her brand new series for Showtime, Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court. One of the things that the series really makes plain to me is that the United States is just built on race and, you know, religion and gender, like, that's it. And then it minors in like, crime and celebrity and sexuality. But boy, like, race is everywhere. And even when we think something isn't a fight about race, like, we think it's about gender, it's still a fight about Race, you know, you describe in the nineteen seventies the evolution of how the evangelicals began to oppose Roe, not so much because of of uh, sexuality and sex, but again because of race. And I'm thinking of this astounding moment you have where we have Nixon on the phone, Richard Nixon on the phone, post Roe saying that, you know, we can't end abortion altogether because it might be necessary in like these extreme cases. And then he says, quote, when you have a black and a white. I mean, race is simply the issue, even when it's not the issue. And you say this, I think somebody in the film says early on, you know, we thought Brown solved it. And we realized the problem wasn't segregation. The problem is white supremacy. Race is, is insoluble in some sense.
0: You know, um, the, the Nixon quote did kind of, you know, sometimes you find things that just your jaw is not on the floor. You know, you suspect some things, but to hear them. And it's really important in documentary, particularly now, right? Where things are are manufactured to go back to the original sources. So like this is nixon in his own words this is not somebody retelling something that they heard this is him recording himself and so he had no compunction about saying the quiet part out loud um the other really really fascinating story that if you if you don't if you're not looking the right way you'll you'll miss it is the evangelical marched into into the you know messy world of politics was really Um, driven by this desire to keep tax-exempt status for its racially segregated schools. (laughs) They didn't want to pay taxes, and they wanted to segregate into the 1980s. And so, hmm, how do we keep our tax-exempt status and not do the thing we want to do, which is admit more Black people than we want to? Well, let's get a conservative named Ronald Reagan elected. He will protect our tax-exempt status, and let us do what we want. And Reagan did try. And there was met with so much pushback that he eventually abandoned the evangelicals, Um, but not before they had forged this alliance. So, evangelicals who had been, you know, apolitical, evangelicals were actually (laughs) pro-choice. Evangelicals didn't vote because voting was secular and kind of dirty and not godly. But when Falwell takes over, he forges this alliance with Catholics whose issue was abortion and said, oh, together, we're very powerful. We're we're aligned enough. And so, the combination of that alliance, in addition to Falwell's fundraising machine, which also, by the way, is the prototype for fundraising on steroids that we then see later with the Federalist Society. And so, you know, you have to understand, though, that 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 initial push into politics was based in part on this racist idea that we need to keep our segregated schools. (laughs) Like, you can't make this up.
1: (laughs) A version of the same issue for me is there's this just completely staggering moment where Thurgood Marshall is being interviewed and he's being asked, you know, this is a man who had to, like, flee courthouses in the South because his life was at risk, being asked, like don't you have sympathy for like the Southern white racist who hates you? Like, why can't you just understand our pain? And he has to sit there and answer that question as though, yes, like I deeply, I don't want to do anything that will make, you know, Southern white racists uncomfortable. And then I think the opening of each of the episodes ends with Katanji Brown Jackson with her like beatific smile, right? Where she's about to, to uh, testify at her confirmation hearings. And it's that same you have to hold all this anger and fury that white people have toward you, and you have to smile and be patient and polite and respectful. And I think uh, this had to have been deliberate, but you know, Brett Kavanaugh screaming, screaming at his hearings and being allowed to do that. And I just think, again, that complete asymmetry, Don, in who gets to perform fury and who has to perform accommodation and solicitude. It's such
0: a punch in the face to see it. Um, I'm so glad that you are pointing this out (laughs) because these are the things that we stay up at night thinking about, is anyone going to get it? And you see Marshall in interviews, Marshall, this firebrand of an advocate, this unapologetic, brilliant lawyer. You see him like physically Holding himself back as he tries to give an answer that is not going to alienate the white audience that he is speaking to, but is also going to stay true to what he really believes. And you see that composure, but you also see the torture. And you can imagine what toll does it take to continue to have these competing impulses? You know, you want to rage against this like insulting question. And yet, Know Brett Kavanaugh comes out and it's the same playbook as Clarence Thomas. You know, so like Ruth Marcus says, she had PTSD. Ruth Marcus, the Washington Post reporter, she had PTSD watching it, it was the same playbook. And so, and this is why I really am grateful to Showtime for having so much time because we could see Clarence Thomas and remember his words. Remember his words. You know, it is a high. Heck, lynching, he said. I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time of the Anita Hill hearings. I lived on Capitol Hill. I remember walking to school, to law school, and everybody knew where all the justices lived. It was a different time. So I walked by the home of what we believed to be one justice, and somebody had written in chalk so it could be erased I believe Anita Hill. You know, I was this young Black woman lawyer. Watching this man eviscerate her, but also I couldn't. It was so astounding to me that he would evoke the most painful rhetoric, racialized rhetoric, as a weapon to protect himself. Lynching. How many thousands of people were lynched in this country? And so he realized that was his superpower. Those white men on the Judiciary Committee, including our now president, were not going to touch that third rail. They were not prepared for that, and Clarence Thomas knew that and used that in order to push through and be seated as a justice. And he has been paying back this country for, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, what he believes are the sins against him. For the past, um, you know, several decades.
1: So, can I ask you uh, a question about sort of perspective and objectivity? Um, let the record reflect that uh, Attorney Porter is nodding. Um, The series deliberately doesn't attempt to both sides this. This is not a love story about FedSuck or Justice Alito. I think it grapples, sometimes grudgingly, with the success of the conservative legal movement and Leonard Leo in reshaping the court. There's real admiration, even among the critics. But there are people toward the end who say, look, Leonard Leo and Donald Trump did nothing in the past eight years that is not what LBJ did, right? They just created a court that executed its wildest dreams. And I think that the paradox that you capture really well is this sense that both sides share a view of what the court should be doing, right? And the the, the series opens with President uh, Barack Obama saying, look, the court does its best, highest, most moral work when it protects vulnerable people who can't succeed through the political process. And of course, now the criticism of the court is that it's awful because it's doing the handiwork of those who can't achieve what they want to achieve through the political process. It feels like at times The complaints are the same and the project is the same. And I know that you don't think that at bottom both sides are the same, but I am interested in teasing out the differences between sort of Barack Obama's articulation of the court exists to do what the political process cannot effectuate versus Leonard Leo saying exactly the same thing.
0: You know, that I I think is um, a question that we all should be wrestling with, and we certainly did struggle with it. So, you know, the first thing that was really, really important was to make sure that we have conservative voices featured prominently in the series. So we have Ted Olson, who, of course, was, um, you know, uh, attorney in Bush v. Gore, who is a noted conservative. I'd like to think he's a principled conservative, if I can be judgmental in that way. We have Don Ayers, who was a Reagan Justice Department official. He loved his time in the Justice Department. <laughs> he said it was a really exciting time to be there. You know, John Bash, who was a clerk for Scalia. So, you know, we have those voices. And we do have, you know, kind of the the, the comment that, look, you may not like what the Federal Society is doing, but you have to admit that they've been successful and, you know, some would even admire the, the strategy. I think that what I am focused on is, it feels like right now, all pretense of fairness has gone out the window. And it is bald, political hardball. When Mitch McConnell refuses to seat Merrick Garland, and yet seats Amy Coney Barrett. um, I think that that's different. I think that that's not just hey here's the rules and we get to do what we want um and a lot of this is um i feel like we're all blinking into the light now and saying oh wait there's no code of ethics <laughs> we just assumed that they would be ethical um oh wait you actually can withhold you know a confirmation hearing just no one had ever done it before because it's it it just feels you know it's not right and and the problem now is while we assumed that people would um you know we're, we're we're looking to a senate of the past a senate where you know Pete Domenici Republican from New Mexico and you know Ted Kennedy Democrat from Massachusetts are friends we are living with the memory of that senate where senators actually would have some comedy would have some respect for for a process on the other side and it turns out goodwill is not enough. You actually do need actual rules in order to govern the most powerful court in the world. (laughs) So um, I don't think that that, uh, uh, the situations are the same. I do think that there is an intentional intent to subvert what we would think of as the democratic process and i think that that is what has changed and i think we need to say that out loud and we need to you know kate shaw says it's not a conservative court it's a radical court and and i think you see that in the decisions i mean you know very well you know when you look at the tortured explanations in the decisions you cannot say apples to apples when you completely ignore precedent when you race Through the emergency docket to have cases decided. We're not living in the same times, and we have to acknowledge that. And so, you know, I leave it to the next reporting and the next series to keep pounding on these issues. I hope what this series does is to join the chorus of folks saying, please look over here. Please, please look over here. Not so that you can protect my politics but so that you can protect our democracy.
1: Yeah, I'm very interested um, in... The respect for centrism and pragmatism. I mean, I think it's it's an amazing thing that you do where you almost make the Burger court under <laughs> Warren Berger look like it's – right? I mean, he was not a great chief justice by any stretch. But I think, as you said up top, you know, John Roberts is going to go down as one of the worst chief justices in history because he can't kind of impress – The value of centrism, you know, again, Rehnquist, not a liberal, not even conservative, arch conservative, lifelong conservative, who I think you treat with a certain amount of regard because, you know, whether it's Rehnquist or Sandra Day O'Connor or Anthony Kennedy, we don't know what the answer is going to be. And we have a swing justice who swings in his... uh, unpredictable. And I think you come out strongly on the side of sort of a pragmatic center, even if it's an extremely conservative, pragmatic center, because it's the only modality that we can function in. And I'm really struck by, you know, I've probably been harder on John Roberts than almost anyone, but I'm struck by the ways in which you really frame him as somebody who is trying very, very hard to be in that model of Kennedy O'Connor
0: Rehnquist. I, I think he's trying hard now, but I, I think it's almost too late. Um the opportunity that he had to keep a center right court Was before he gutted the Voting Rights Act. And so, with that decision, I think he can claim no moral high ground when his, you know, uh, the justices that are to the right of him, which is hard to imagine, but they are, um, uh, do what, you know, they write the decisions that they would like to write. Like, you got your pet, you know, thing that you've been championing for decades, you know, you gutted the Voting Rights Act. And now we get to overturn abortion, we get to gut the administrative state, we get to overturn a century of precedent on gun laws, as we have a crisis of of gun violence, of the most violent country in the world. So, um, I think, um, see, I felt like we were kind of um, pointed about Justice Roberts. (laughs) So maybe it's a uh, there's so much criticism to go around but um I found it shocking you know his his testimony at his confirmation hearing minimizing his own writing and saying he was just a lowly you know kind of fresh out of law school idealist you know, who was writing that the voting rights actually be overturned? You know, like, like who comes, who springs fully form saying, like, stop people from being protected to vote? Like, what is that? Um, so um I I must um say I think Justice Roberts has a lot of reckoning to do. I think that he's probably always considered himself a moral and fair and even handed person. I think if he's honest with himself, I would hope he would think about, um, you know, this moment and think about what real courage would take and real courage is actually maybe, and and this is why I very shocked. No one is more surprised than I am that I had some nice things to say about Rehnquist (laughs) because when I was in law school, I mean, I guess this is not great, but like Darth Vader was kind of like Rehnquist for us. I actually got, you know, got struck from a, a jury pool because uh, the the lawyer said, "What do you think of the Supreme Court?" I said, oh, "I think the court is so conservative," and blah blah blah. I was a first year law student, like I didn't know any better. But you know, Rehnquist, who also writes very disturbingly once again about race. And yet, you know, when it comes to Miranda, um, he, he doesn't, you know, take the opportunity to overturn it. He does the opposite of what Justice Roberts is doing right now. And I think that that's interesting and that's reflective of our time. And, and that is, that to me reflects something of a respect for the institution. Of course, what's really, really interesting is Rehnquist, it's not so clear he really had the opportunity to overturn Miranda. So, how brave was he, really? It's really easy to be a flame-throwing conservative like Scalia when none of your stuff is gonna get through and you can just write for another day. You know, but then I think like, isn't that what Katanji Brown Jackson is doing and what Sonia Sotomayor are doing right now? They are writing for another day. When they write those, those long, detailed dissents. And they point out every flaw in majority opinions, they're writing for another day. And I'm sorry that they have to write for another day, but I'm so glad that they are there. And I do think that in some way gives me hope that they are assuming that their decisions are going to be needed, that someone someday is going to look back and say, you know, just like Plessy v. Ferguson when we decided that we were wrong. And so, you know, they are helping to craft the bedrock and the foundation for those future decisions that will hopefully get us back on a more even path.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think such it's such a, a through line is even as we are sliding backward, there are these landmark moments and Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson are Towering historical figures and I think you know the hope that I always find and the hope that you're flagging is there are you know tens and thousands of young women in law school who are saying that's you know what I said which is I'm not going to law school and then suddenly Sandra Day O'Connor's on the court and I was like oh I could do this right I could see myself here and so I think there is a way in which like we have to See our heroes, even if we're watching them lose in order to imagine ourselves in the story. I want to end, if I can, on this legitimacy question, because it's very much where the series ends. And I think it's where all of our heads are right now. And I, you know, I was struck, Dawn, by the ways in which the series is a critique of this current court. All of the voices we hear, I think with no exception, including mine in the film, are voices that actually love the court for the same ideas you describe walking past the building. I can't walk past the building without getting goosebumps. And yet still the whole thing we know is going to be cast at an effort to delegitimize the court. You know, Justice Alito is going to tell somebody that you, Don Porter, and you alone, like are causing threats to his life and to the rule of law. And I wonder where, you know, you locate this conversation about how do we criticize the way the court is operating now, as you say, the, the the procedures that they use to take cases to decide what's on the docket to decide cases, how people are seated and how that system is broken. And how do we talk about all that without being accused of being someone who just wants to live in a lawless land of like burning trash cans? Because I think the idea that you can love the court and still criticize the court has really fallen out of favor, at least with some of the folks you are criticizing with the series.
0: I think that at some point you just have to do your best to be as fair and as accurate. And uh, we are nothing if not accurate in this series. It's really meticulously researched, you know, the two lead producers uh, have a journalistic background. And so I think everything that we've said is, is true. You know, you, you criticize the things you love because you want them to live up to their promise. And that's, that's what we do for our children. That's what we do for ourselves. That's what we do for anybody you love. You need to tell them the truth. And, um, that's, that's the spirit in which this was constructed. And I think that, you know, I think one of the, where, where you and I started, um, this conversation was, you know, really a question about why don't we try and investigate the cultural, you know, significance of this court? Why don't we look into the personalities? I think also there's a little fear that if we don't have something that is, unquestioned where are we we feel rootless we feel you know it's somehow we're like we're not grounded we need to have something permanent to believe in like that's probably why we have these big grand buildings it's something for us to look at and say yes I believe in that and there the fear is if we question that well then we're lawless and I think it's actually the opposite if we question it we say, what do we value about it? And what do we want to encourage it to be? And so if we don't question it, um, that's when we're in danger of losing it. It's not the other way around.
1: In one of the very first scenes, uh, we see Earl Warren being robed by a black man, right? And then over time, we see justices who are being robed, you know, by their wives. Like, it's no longer this invisible worker, you know, who doesn't have a a name or a role. Like, something has changed. And I feel like, for me, that's such a metaphor for what you're trying to do. In the series, which is sort of say that this is a court with neither the power of the person nor the sword. I think six of us say that over the course of the of the series, that has always needed this cloak of legitimacy in order to get his work done, right? That's that's what it has. But that that cloak of legitimacy for centuries was Part and parcel of denying the rights of black people and of women and of minorities and of LGBTQ Americans and of immigrants. Like it was always a legitimacy that was rooted in and in fact flourished with the invisibility of all these people that you're trying to lift up in in the series. And I, I do find, you know, your series really tells, I, I think the arc tells the story of all these shifts, you know, to bring us to this moment where the rights of those people that have finally been vindicated by the court are now contracting, right? And the stench of corruption is growing. And somehow we're in a moment where the rights of the wealthy, white, straight, landowning man (laughs) who has a gun is paramount again. And I guess I just wonder, like, how do we come back from this? You know, how do you come back to your grandmother's story, right, of what we all believed the court should do and what the court did so brilliantly and beautifully over the course of, let's be clear, a couple of aberrant decades, right, (laughs) in a long history of making people invisible. How do we come back?
0: You know, the, um, the brilliance of the idea, the construct, the way that our government is organized you know, we've only seen how uh, brilliant it is as the years have gone by, and so the idea of the court of our separation of powers is brilliant. That has turned out to be a you know adorable concept. It's in the execution <laughs> that we've failed. We have the ideal, and we have the idea. And so it is, and that's also referring to the subtitle. It's up to us to live up to the promise and the potential of that idea and that ideal. And so what we can't do is give up on this court, give up on there. You know, I think someone says like, there isn't a plan B, this is it. And so we have to wrestle with the imperfections because what I fear the most is people throwing up their hands and saying, I don't trust any of it. And then what they do is they're left to their own devices. And I I don't think that that's uh, the healthiest or safest place that we can be. So I think, you know, in the end, it's up to us.
1: I think it was me, Don, that said there isn't a plan B, and I think I actually See, There's a was a brilliant
0: person who said there
1: was a plan B. <laughs> no, but the br- the brilliant person I was channeling when I said it to you was Anita Hill, who said it in my book. You know that that we the alternative to this is chaos, and you know who doesn't thrive in chaos is people of color and women and vulnerable minorities. And so this is it. This is the way that we, you know, keep from fighting it out on the streets. And so we have to fight for it. But um, I think for folks who are feeling powerless, what Again, it's your subtitle. The point is you choose to be powerless, right? You, you choose to say, I am enthralled to this forever and ever. There's nothing I can do. So I'm going to like tweet angrily about it. And I think what it's where I started, but I think maybe a good place to land is what I think the central thesis here is your choice to be powerless <laughs> is a choice to maintain the status quo. And that historically the court, and presidents who seat justices on the court respond to, you know, the secret sauce that is people who are awake and paying attention. And so really, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for this really like heroic effort. Um, it is, I think, at least the beginning of the beginning, as you say, of a really sustained national conversation about why we don't talk about the court the way we should. So Don Porter is an award-winning, like, so, so many awards, and I'm not even going to try to list them again, filmmaker and director. The series is Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, which will be airing starting next weekend on Showtime. Don, it is a treat and a thrill to spend uh, some time with you before the term begins in sitting just in a place of hope and of aspiration and kind of idealism, which we don't hear nearly enough. And So thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, And for the people that we got to speak for this series are the minds um, and people with the hearts that I admire the most. And so I definitely count you among those people. Um, I'm incredibly grateful to all of them for their time. And I think, you know, every single person I spoke to is concerned about this court, regardless of political affiliation, but they are also hopeful. And so, um, you know, I think I hope this leaves people with some hope about, um, you know, we're not going to give up.
1: And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for supporting my book, Lady Justice, coming out on paperback this week. You can order it from all your usual places. You can also keep in touch with us on the show at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash podcast. We love your letters. Thank you so much for your support. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. And we'll be back with another episode of Amicus in one short week. Until then, take good care.